Well, there was one reason why I was so quick. It's because if I don't do it now, I'm going to make out. And one reason why I picked Teresa, because she was early. So then it's over and done with. However, over the couple of months that I've known about this, I have learned to appreciate Teresa. I have learned so much about her. And um, the way I express her, her life message is loving our loving God. God is a loving God. And it's learning to love our loving God. And she mainly did that through prayer. So let me tell you a little bit about her. She was born in Spain, in Avila, and she's called Teresa of Avila. Uh, today, it would take us about an hour and a half to drive from Madrid to Avila. Um, it's kind of in the middle of Spain, although when she was alive, it took a bit longer. She was born 1515. That's about 20 years after Columbus came and uh, landed in America. When she was two years old, uh, Martin Luther nailed his, 50, his 95 Theses in the, on the door in Württemberg. And for the last, oh, I don't know, six, seven hundred years, the Moors, who were Muslims, had been occupying Spain and the peninsula there. So she had heard stories about them and about persecution and so on. She came from a very large family. They were wealthy, they were of nobility, but they might have bought the nobility. They were devout Christians, both her mom and her dad. They had had some religious issues in the past. Her grandfather was forced to become a Christian and denounce being a Jew. And that was made a major spectacle of that she had experienced or she had heard her father tell about. She started to read when she was about five years old. And um, she always had a desire for God. She wanted to see God. How does one see God? Well, we have a video about that. Did you know the world's so full of adventure and we're missing out? What do you mean, Teresa? Well, haven't you heard of the wonderful work of saints and God's work in the world through them? Well, I've heard the stories, but we can never do the things that they did. Well, we love God, so it shouldn't be too hard to become a saint, to become a righteous follower of God, right? Well, how are we supposed to become a saint? Hmm. To become a saint, we must live a righteous life, and we can become martyrs! Okay, first of all, how would we do that? And second of all, what exactly is a martyr? So, a martyr is someone who dies for the faith. How we could achieve that, though, is another question entirely. Well, what about the Moors? They live in southern Spain, and they kill Christians. If we journeyed down there, they would behead us, and then we would be considered martyrs, or even saints, I would think. Wonderful idea. Let's go out and become saints. Ladies! What are you doing out here? Why, hello, Uncle. We're actually on our way to become saints. And how do you plan on doing that? 
Oh, well, we were going to go to the Moors since they're killing Christians, and we figured mm. that would be a great way to become martyrs. And then we can become saints. Exactly. Oh, well, how do I say this? Well, come along with me and I'll explain more as we go. Thank you to Andrew, Bria, Corbin, and Jake for that true story. When Teresa was little, she talked in, uh, one of her siblings into doing this. She wanted to be beheaded because saints are close to God. And the quick way of getting there is through martyrdom. A childish way of looking at things, sure. But I think it also speaks about somebody who loves God and would do anything to get closer to her. A childlike, childlike faith, which really puts Teresa in a, in a nutshell. And I think sometimes we want to have shortcuts. Becoming a martyr would have been kind of a painful, sure, but a quick way to God. For Teresa, God had a different way. Uh, she spent the rest of her life trying to get close to God. She didn't die as a martyr, but she did have a lot of hardships. And she died, she was about my age when she died, and a natural death. Uh, but 40 years after her death, she was, uh, the church announced her as, uh, or declared her as a saint. Her teenage years, she was a social butterfly. She was loved by everyone, and she liked to be liked. She was easygoing, she was beautiful, she loved to have fun. Different books and articles says different things about her teenage years. We'll just leave that. But at 16, everybody agrees, her father sent her to a monastery school. And uh, that was pretty good for that 1520s, for a girl to be sent to further education. And this school was known for their ability to produce devoted wives and mothers. That's what they were aiming for. After about two years, Teresa got really sick and had to leave school, and she went to live with, um, with uh, her family and so on. But after about two years again, she, um, she decided that she wanted still to get closer to God. And in Europe, in the 1530s, there was not a whole lot of life choices. You either became a wife and a mother, or you became a nun. So having seen her mother die at childbirth when she gave birth to her 10th child at the age of 37, Teresa did not feel like marriage was high on her list. So she decided to become a nun. Being dramatic, she ran away at night so that her father wouldn't stop her and came to this one particular monastery that she had chosen. It wasn't just holy motives, I think, that brought her there. It was a very easy monastery. It was a place where a friend of hers had gone before, so she thought they could have kind of fun. Um, they were allowed to have visitors, so they were up to date on all the fashions and all the gossips and everything that was going on around them. 
people actually were, or the girls were chosen to become nuns more so because of the dowry the parents could give rather than the girls' piety. But in there, she still had this desire to become close to God. And she started to learn about something called mental prayer. And we're going to come back to that. I said she had had a lot of hardship. And within two years, she became sick again. And this time, she's again taken away. And she's going to go and live with her sister. But on the way there, she stays with an uncle. And there she starts to read more about um, prayer and about union with Christ, mystical unions with Christ. She goes to her sister and meets a healer, so-called, and she almost kills her. And she has to leave there and go back to live in her father's house. And there, at one point, she gets so sick that for four days she can't move. She can't blink, nothing. And they start to prepare for her funeral because they think she's dead. But then all of a sudden she blinks and they realize she's still alive. It took eight months for her to start to move. It took three years for her to learn to walk again. But for the rest of her life, she lived with pain, a lot of pain, arthritis, headaches, malaria. They might think that she might even have had cancer. But she goes back to the monastery because, again, that's where she feels like God is calling her. And she has this love for God that just grows. And she comes back to this, what she calls mental prayer. And for the rest of her life, she practices that every single day. A few more things about her life. She's got a great, great sense of humor and people like her. Um, she experiences a lot of supernatural things. We're not going to go into them, but they are quite exciting. Um, she starts to wonder if God has uh, put on her heart to form a new monastery, a new order, or uh, reform the Carmelites, Carmelites that she was working with, because she didn't like the gossip and all the visitors and the little time that actually got to focus on, on Christ. So she founded the Discalced Carmelized. And I'm sure all of you know what that means. I had to look it up. It means no shoes. The Carmelites, the regular ones, they had shoes. And her new order, they didn't wear shoes. They were hemp sandals. And their habits weren't as comfortable because they were into penance and doing some interesting things. She had hardship trying to uh, establish this order, but finally she and four nuns were able to, to create this new order. And for the rest of her life, she actually started 17 new monasteries, two of them being uh, for men. One of them was led by John of the Cross, Somebody who was about 30 years younger than her, but who she discipled and who became a very dear spiritual friend of hers. She was a super active woman. She did not just go into monastery and locked her door and spend time with God. She wrote a few books, actually lots of them, and lots and lots and lots of letters. This was the time of the Inquisition, so every now and again the Pope would put out a ban on a book, 
And I think even some of her books were banned for a time. But in 1970, she is actually one of the two first ones to become a doctor of the church. Now, she's not a doctor like Carmen and I am. She's the doctor of the church, which is quite different. I think there's only four women over history who have become doctors of the church. And it means like their teaching is believable. That's what the church says. And she became the doctor of prayer. She also deeply, deeply uh, cared for people. And um, yeah, that's why she was a very... She wrote a lot of letters. She traveled all over Spain. When you have to establish 17 uh, monasteries and live in each one of those monasteries, you can see that that takes quite a time. But what she's known for is her relationship with her beloved Christ. So her life message, loving our loving God. How do we do that? So mental prayer is what the books call it, but I found another explanation that said contemplative prayer. I kind of like that a little bit better. It means loving God through contemplation of Christ's face. She was known to look at statues or icons and just look at Christ. Meditate on God's word and dialogue with God. Those three things, contemplation, meditation, and dialogue with God's face and God's word. So contemplative prayer, it's not prayer that I use uh, a set written order of things. There could be a start to it, but it's not the main thing. Someone said that prayer is mental when the thoughts and affections of my soul are not expressed in a previously determined formula. They are free to go wherever, my thoughts and my affections for Christ. And the purpose of contemplative prayer is to be transformed by the mind and thus bring about a change in my countenance and in my heart. It's been around since the early church fathers. It was not something new that Teresa came up with, but she's the one that probably wrote the most about it and developed it. And she said, contemplative prayer is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. Me and Jesus. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who you know loves you. She says, the important thing in this kind of prayer is not to think much, but to love much. Some of the nuns had a hard time understanding how to do it, and they felt like they had to come up with deep thoughts and write deep things. And she said, I'm not asking you to formulate all these fancy things. I'm asking only that you look at him. It's as simple as that. And my comment is, it's as hard as that. So first, we need to search for God. One year, when we had a discover group here, 
the first couple of times we met in September, I asked, uh, when did Jesus become more than a name for you? And some of them said, well, you know, he's always been more. Or last summer it happened. Or it wasn't until I came to Prairie. And a couple said, I don't think he is. It doesn't matter where we start, as long as we start. Begin by telling God, I want to want you. I want to long for you. But even that, I need to be given from you. James 4 and 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. It's going to happen. If I take my time to search for God, he's going to be letting me find him. It's about falling in love with God. It takes time. And we have to practice it. Teresa said, it's not to think too much, but love much. I said that already. And I do that when I realize what he has done for me. When I look at a picture of maybe his crucifixion or his resurrection or the nativity scene. And I realize what he has done for me. When I stop and ponder it, it becomes real for me. Number two, you have to be willing to be alone with God. Easily said, kind of harder to do. Matthew 6, 6 says, whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. It takes time. I'm more of an extrovert than an introvert. I prefer praying with someone. This kind of prayer, you have to be alone. And I will need to allow him to take over my life. So it requires that I am perseverance, faithfulness, and that I make it become a habit to spend time with him. Number three, you have to be aware of his presence. Where is God? He's not out there. And maybe I go and find him on Sunday mornings and maybe once a day at night before I go to bed. No, he's inside of me. His spirit dwells in me. I don't look for him outside. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you are the t God's temple and that the spirit dwells in you? Galatians 2.20 says, And it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, followers of New Age love Teresa. They kind of focus on saying, you know, look within, you're divine within. That's not what Teresa is saying. I am not an expert on her, but from what I've read, that would be the furthest thing from her heart. And it would be the biggest sorrow she could ever hear that she would have been misinterpreted like that. She loved Christ. We sang before, uh, when I see the ashes, you see beauty. That's Teresa. She saw the ashes in herself, but she saw and knew that God saw beauty. So God is with you. 
It's a conversation, it's a dialogue with, between you and God. God speaks inside of you. I don't mean that he has an audible voice, but it could happen. I've actually only heard it once in my life, but once when I had, uh, the first time I taught in prison, at Christmas, we'd had a Christmas party with the inmates. And it was such joy. And when I came home that day, I was just thanking God. And I was saying, you know, God, that was so great. And being, you know, silly and just having a chat with God. I woke up the stairs and I said, God, what did I do to deserve such a day? And I heard an audible giggle. Did you know God can giggle? And then inside of me, I felt like God said, Emma, absolutely nothing. You have done nothing to deserve this. It's just my grace. It's my love for you. Teresa has, uh, writes about a dialogue she had with God. She said uh, she was praying about the trials and the suffering and all the hardships that she was going through. And she thought she heard God say, but that's how I treat my friends. I told you, Teresa, I was quick and smart. And she answers God, no wonder you have so few friends. Okay, this is not enough. You're still not getting what I'm saying. It's hard to explain this. Um, I wonder if we can do an exercise together that you would normally do on your own, but... Because it's simple. We want it to be complicated, but it's not. So, I'm going to read John 8, 2 to 11, and then we're going to talk about it. At the dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. And she said to Jesus, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. In the law of Moses, he commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a bias for, basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. But when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. With this, those who heard it began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus strained up and straightened up and asked, Woman, where are they? Have no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. Okay, we're going to read it again. But now I want you to be active. I want you to choose whose eyes are you going to see this story through. Here are your options. You can see it through the scribes or the Pharisees. You could be a 20-year-old wannabe scribe. Or you could be in the crowd already sitting down and listening to Jesus. Or you could be the woman caught in adultery. Or maybe the man that was caught 
but not brought before Jesus, you will notice different things depending on whose eyes you see this with. So when I say we read, then I'm actually using the scriptures, and then I'm going to ask you questions in, in between the verses. So we read, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So my question is, where are you now? Are you with the Pharisees and the Sadducees making their way, hoping to catch Jesus in a bind? What are you guys talking about? Or are you the woman who's going to be forced to stand alone in front of him? She's now forced to come with a, with a group. She's probably scared half to death and feels so alone. Or are you seated with a crowd, listening to what he's saying and thinking, is he really the Messiah? Is what he's saying really true? Jesus is teaching, and we know he's a good speaker, so the audience is focused on him. But all of a sudden, something is happening on the periphery. So look over there. There's noise. There's people going on. It's getting louder. What's going on? The group marches up and interrupts Jesus speaking. So we read, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. The law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a bias for accusing him. What's going on inside you right now? Can you feel the stone in your pocket that you picked up that you want to throw at whoever has the nerve to theologically disagree with you? You are theoretically correct. You know the right. Or have you kind of zoned out and just have a theoretical discussion about, you know, was it correct? Did Moses really say that they should be stoned or should they have been strangled and... Will Rome even allow us to have an execution? Or are you the woman who's now even more scared and she realized that everybody is looking at her? Or are you the man, the adulterous man, who's hiding in the crowd, hoping that nobody will discover him? It's an intense situation for everyone. We read, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What is he writing? We don't know. We don't even know if they could read it. The woman probably was illiterate, so she probably couldn't read it. Is it all quiet all around? Uh, it says, uh, we read, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. And all eyes are now on Jesus. So if you're the woman, what do you feel right now? I think maybe you think, they're no longer all looking at me. 
I got a second of a breath of a break here. Can you feel the peace of not being looked at, stared at? Can you hear the silence coming over the temple court? What is he going to say? We have to listen and we'll read. And Jesus said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Silence. Nobody says anything. And we read, again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus is looking at the ground, focusing on what he's writing, refusing to take on the role as the accuser. There's total silence. But now one person starts to move. And then another. And another. And another. And we read, at this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. What is the woman experiencing right now? Is she aware of that they are leaving? I bet she's just saying, I don't understand. I'm so confused. What's going on? And we read, until only Jesus was left there with the woman who stands there. What's the tone of voice when Jesus speaks to her, when he breaks the silence? Do you think that he's been kind of out of it and written his next sermon on the ground and now he realized, oh, they're all gone, what happened? I don't think so. I think it's a very soft and loving voice that comes through when we read, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She can only whisper her answer. No one, sir. Then she hears the most beautiful words she has ever heard in her entire life. Then neither I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus uses his power and his authority as the one standing before her, but not to accuse her, but to free her, free her from her sin. At the same time, he asks her not to sin anymore. So stay with this picture where you're standing before Jesus and begin to talk to him about it. In that crowd, you, Jesus, you saw the woman. You really saw her. You really saw her. You didn't see the adulterer, but you saw the woman you loved. Jesus, I'm so thankful for your forgiveness. It's amazing that you can love me and hate sin. I don't get it. Is it maybe because you hate what sin does to the people you love? And you forgive us our sin and you free us and you heal us no matter what my sin is. Jesus, how did you feel when they accused her? 
Were you angry at them? Were you angry at her? Jesus, I hate the feeling of everybody looking at me and judging me. But Jesus, do you know what? I also hate to be invisible when nobody seems to take notice of me whatsoever. Jesus, I've been a Christian my whole life. I've loved you my whole life, 66 years, and still did so much about me and so little about you. Jesus, it would have been so much easier to have you physically here. I could have washed your clothes. I could have made dinner for you. I could even have paid for a new pair of sandals. Jesus, what are you saying? You want me to be quiet and just sit here with you? I hope you get the idea. You first focus on him, whether it's through a picture or whether it's through reading, and then you go into a dialogue with him. And he will never look down on you and say, you are so stupid. You want to go and have the Muslims kill you? No, he says, I receive your love. Let's talk more about it. And you can ask questions and you need to be quiet and listen to what he's saying. Even physically see yourself as leaning into him. Put your head on his arm. Dare to stay there, even though it feels really awkward. Make it a habit of staying there and talking to him. I pray that you get the idea of picturing Jesus. There's an old song that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Dare to take the time and look into his eyes and ponder him. And then began to thank him and be quiet with him and listen to him. Thank you.